Hello, and welcome to Writer's Reason, where we will be covering The Hanging City by Charlie Holmberg, a romanticy novel. Along the way, we will discuss tactics Charlie used and how they influenced her story. I'm your host, Brick Phelps. Thanks for listening. Okay, guys, this episode is a good one. I recently had the great opportunity to attend Dragonsteel for the first time. If you don't know what that is, it's Brandon Sanderson's convention he does out in Salt Lake uh, around the time of, I believe, next year will be December. But it was amazing, and I loved every second of it. But one of my favorite parts was meeting all the authors who had set up booths and were hand-selling their own books. I got to meet Charlie Holmberg, among others, and buy this book directly from her along with others of her works. I also met Trisha Levenseller, and a friend picked up some of her books. Since learning a bit more about them, I decided I need to get me a few of her stories and do some analysis on them too. Lots of amazing stuff lining right up with what I like to read. This book, The Hanging City, is inspired by the classic Troll Under the Bridge story in which an entire troll city has been built underneath an immense bridge. In the wake of a drought and fleeing her abusive father, our main character, Lark, seeks not only safety but a place to belong, a family, and she hopes to find it in the hanging troll city of Kagmar. This story has beautiful plays on unexpected romance, fear-based magic with consequences, cross-culture conflict, and the personal effects of abuse and war. All in all, I loved it and rate it 5 out of 5. It was also in the running for Goodreads Top Romanticy for 2023. If you haven't found yourself a copy, get one. Some of my favorite aspects of the book were the vivid relationships that felt real and yet were kept clean and appropriate for wholesome romance lovers like myself. It had a tense opening and kept me hooked all the way through and it really let me sink my mind into the world of Kagmar and the Trollis as they like to be called. But without further ado... I will be moving on to the analysis, and of course, it is filled with all the spoilers, so before you listen, please take the time to do the story justice and hear it from the author first. I've heard the audible narration is really good. Charlie Holmberg begins this best-selling book with a prologue. There are some elements of this choice I would like to highlight. I don't mean to start off this review with something of a criticism, because I don't want this to be a criticism. Um, But it's just something that I would like to highlight because it is not a choice that I would have made. But first, the prologue, despite being separate from the main story, like any other prologue, is still about the main character, which I like. The main character is Kalia Thalel, more commonly referred to as Lark. It's in first person, and it's also short. It's just five pages. These are all things that, for me, are pluses. In my opinion, prologues can quickly and dramatically take away from your story. I don't know if it's because of shorter attention spans, changing trends, or a mixture of both, but you're seeing less and less prologues unless you're getting into epic fantasy. But I have to say something about why I think this prologue may not have been needed. This is my opinion, just like everything else in these reviews, but this opinion is a hesitant one because I don't really want to say anything bad about this book. I really liked it. I gave it five stars in my reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, but in spite of that, I think the information delivered in this prologue could easily have been inserted without problem into the story. For example, there are times we get 
minor flashbacks into Lark's past throughout the story, giving us information that perhaps could have included the things we learned in this short prologue. This is minor, though. I think it's a personal preference whether or not you like prologues. I'm not one, but for many, it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, this is a best-selling book, so very, very well it could be that I'm way off base. But this brings me to the actual first image that we get of the lark we will be following throughout the story. She is wind-whipped and dust-eaten, dragging herself onto the great Empyrean Bridge. A horrible drought has plagued the world, making food and water scarce and valuable. Add on top of this being pursued by her abusive and power-hungry father, and you get the gist of what has drawn her to this, her last hope. Her last hope is the hanging city of Kagmar, home to humankind's counterparts and enemies, the Trollus. Trollus is the politically correct term for a troll. By the way, should you ever visit? I love the visceral, desperate air this book throws us into right from the start. Another reason I think it should have actually started here. This is such a powerful beginning that I think it makes a better hook than the prologue did. Speaking the oath that she learned from the Cosmodian, or the bard figure from the beginning, she gains access to Kagmar. But she's not permitted to stay because she has no value to the community, and they're basically running out of room to house anybody. Stealing herself, Lark demonstrates her greatest weapon and deepest secret. A dark gift she loathes about herself, but ultimately that lets her stay in Kagmar. She is placed in the care of a trollist named Unach. Hard, stern, and gruff, Unach shows her the robes of what it means to be a monster slayer, something the Council of Kagmar thought would be a good use of Lark's dark talents. You see, Lark can magically instill fear in others. Though the effects on her are equal, it's a horrible talent she is unwilling to use unless it is to save a life, and she doesn't want anyone else to know about it. But it's during this informative time that she meets Asmar, Unach's brother. While at first just another trollus, Asmar soon begins showing a softer, more human side to him, taking care of Lark, helping her, and even asking her to come help with him in his work when she needs a break from monster slaying. This marks our catalyst, promising a romance story and setting Lark on the path to deal with her own demons, her past, and finally be able to achieve her life goal, family. The slow burn of the romance is evidence as, at first, it's almost, it almost doesn't seem that Asmar is anything but Unach's brother, and truly he won't really be until the midpoint. I like how the mixture of these two genres, fantasy and romance, have allowed for a more dynamic layout of the beats that still come across as orderly and neat. You see, ordinarily, in a fantasy story, entering Kagmar might have been the catalyst. It has many of the earmarks earmarks, and pushes her into the story and a new world. Except in this story, it comes in the first chapter, something a catalyst doesn't usually do. But it works, when you blend it with the traditional romance plot because the catalyst isn't the typical happening of an ordinary story. It's the meeting of the two love interests. So with them both together, you can get this awesome entrance into Kagmar, kicking off the story with a bang, and then you can have the meeting be the actual catalyst, 
to feature the romance as the main story element. One thing that I might have included, if this were a story that I'd been smart enough to come up with, would be a bit stronger of a meeting, or a meet-cute. A meet-cute is a literary term for the first time the love interests meet. The only reason I bring this up is because I didn't know Asmar was anything other than another trollus until the midpoint. I think that adding in more of a meet-cute would promise more and telegraph to the reader the romance to come without having to show Lark herself that he was a love interest. Because I was confused, I actually thought a different character, a half-trollist named Perg, was a love interest, only because they had much more of an impactful meeting. Something that I feel might strengthen the meet-cute could be something simple, like a more focused impression on Lark's feelings the first time she sees him. It could be something more powerful, like some of the bigger meet-cutes you've seen in chick flicks or other romance books. It is to be noted, however, that meet-cutes are more a staple of rom-coms than other traditional romances, but that isn't to say that they don't appear in there as well. So Charlie Holmberg may very well have been keeping the first meeting soft and unimportant to enhance the reality and slow burn aspects of the story. But think of some of your favorite love stories, movies, or books. Many of them employ an extraordinary meeting of the two characters, like the movie 500 Days of Summer. After seeing and wanting to meet Summer, the main character Tom doesn't get up the courage until they are in the elevator and both are jamming out to the same song. It's not crazy, but it's above average. Or in Hitch. Hitch sees and approaches Sarah only to be interrupted by another guy wanting to hit on Sarah. The following conversation is dynamic, different, and certainly above average. So both routes, the casual meeting and the meet-cute, have advantages and disadvantages. The one in this story worked to enhance the casual, realistic meeting and the slow burn that followed. A stronger, above-average meeting might have enhanced the eventual romance, promising more, but it could very well have been a good decision not to go that route. But while the story takes a slow burn angle, Lark buckles down and leans into learning Kagmar, its systems, and casts. She's determined to find a place, belong, because Lark wants nothing more than to belong and to find some semblance of a family, something her abusive father has denied her. This marks our break into two moment, the moment she makes a plan and takes action in the new world, pushing forward. Lark even gets to meet other humans in the city, holed up in the communal building called the Enclave. These humans have a much harder life than Lark, something that Lark doesn't realize. Plus, working as a monster slayer, Lark has had a much higher status than these humans. While technically, in the caste system, not having any status, Lark's job does allow her living quarters with Unach and Asmar, as well as some protections from the brutal, the brutal human task force headed by Grodd, a vicious trollus with a penchant for violence. Lark is oblivious to all of this, but wants to be a part of this group. She sees this group of humans as a chance for family. When she is invited to a late-night bonfire, she's eager. But when she arrives, Lark doesn't find happy people around a bonfire playing games. Instead, she finds a group of angry boys who think she's making a mock of them. They ambush her and beat her until she is forced to use her fear on them. Because this moment is so painful for her, having to use her abilities on other people, it is the pinch point of the story. It's a blow against her character arc. The chance for family has again fled, and she's left with only new enemies because of her gift. 
Next comes the fun and games, the part of the story where we get to explore Kagmar along with Lark, experiencing monster hunting, training, and avoiding questions as to why she was a slayer anyway. Only the council knows what she can do. The day after being beaten by the disgruntled humans and keenly feeling her pain, but also feeling the need to be useful and earn her place, Lark tries to go to work. She would... She would have to. She would have to climb out over the city walls in search of invading monsters, keeping a lookout. If it were not for Asmar. Asmar asks for her help in engineering, saying he's very busy. But in fact, he's just looking out for Lark. It's much easier for her to sit at a desk doing math computations than climbing over the wall with all of her bruised and broken ribs. But her time in engineering is cut short as the horn rings out. Monster attack. Despite her wounds, she rushes to help. She climbs the city walls, seeing the enormous monster attacking the other monster slayers, including Unach. She tries to help, but her efforts only make it more aggressive and she is nearly swept from the side of the city. That's when she sees the second monster is huge, and it's about to jump from the canyon wall to the city and be on top of them. As it leaps, however, Lark blasts it with fear, nearly crippling herself, but making it miss the jump and fall at the same time. She just manages to pass it off as a lucky shot with a sling to avoid questions. But it doesn't work on everyone. Anunach becomes suspicious of Lark, but has nothing to go on yet. Our story takes a real turn when Perg, the half-trollist friend that she met before, enters the cast tournament, hoping to move up a cast by being a stronger opponent. When he does, the crowd is mixed, some thinking that this half-trollist, the only one in the city, is out of line, trying to improve his cast. In demonstration of the absurdity of it all, Grod, who holds a high-ranking trades it for a lower one just to be able to fight the tired and much smaller Perg. Lark watches as the barbaric side of Kagmar takes his toll on her new friend. He is beaten, bloodied, and broken, lying at Grod's feet, but the larger Trollus doesn't stop, as the tournament usually calls for. He instead raises the axe again to kill Perg. In a flash, Lark is there, blasting Grod with enough fear to make the Trollus wet himself. Luckily for Lark, Grod's response is flight instead of fight, and he runs away. But now Lark has cemented her rivalry with Grod and prompted a near-catastrophic ruling from the council. She is almost thrown out, but they let her stay if she swears never to use her gift on another trollus. We reach our midpoint in a tense sequence of days spent trying to avoid Grod, who now has it out for Lark. In one pivotal moment, she sees him and he begins to follow her. In an attempt to lose him, she ducks into the waterworks, a dark and cluttered space. But he finds her. It's nearly the end as she is caught by the throat and dangled out the window, the canyon yawning below her. With her powers on lockdown from the council, there is only one thing that can save her. And he appears behind Grodd. Asmar is there and stops everything, saving Lark and running Grodd off. Shaken and terrified with natural fear, Lark is held comfortingly by Asmar. It's only after she has spent a while, like this, does she realize Asmar might have feelings for her. This is a good example of a romantic midpoint. In romance stories, the midpoint is when the relationship takes a turn or amps up. This revelation that there is more than just kindness in this embrace tells Lark 
the seriousness of her situation. A human and a trollus? As Grodd becomes more of a threat, Lark and Asmar grow closer. As Asmar protects Lark, more and more. Their relationship grows as they share more about themselves until Lark finally reveals her darkest secret to Asmar. He, in turn, accepts her, something no one has done before. Their relationship grows even as the antagonistic forces move in. Scouts are dying, Grodd is as dangerous as ever, and their relationship must remain a secret. And if it doesn't, Asmar and Lark might face more serious punishment or exile. I like the dynamic again between the two different plots, the fantasy and the romance. A lot of times when you come to the midpoint, you'll have maybe an upward curve before the midpoint and then a downward curve after it where events seem to be taking a negative turn. Or it might be the reverse, as we talked about before. It might be kind of a negative curve leading up to the midpoint and then positively heading up until the all is lost. What I think Charlie might have done in this situation is taking that dynamic and actually doing one of each in the uh, the romance and the fantasy plot. So as the fantasy plot goes down, things are getting worse. Grodd is more dangerous than ever, and the city is starting to see some uh, some turmoil with outside forces. The romance plot is actually having an upward bend, counteracting and contrasting the events of the fantasy plot. So with the two as a contrast, you get this up and down movement that is very enjoyable to read and very engaging. But things really heat up. When Asmar moves out of the shared living to get his own place, with the specific intention to have somewhere he and Lark can be without others knowing. Something I want to note, that is, I I found it interesting and refreshing not to have this fall into the trope of Lark finding offense that Asmar doesn't want others to know about their relationship. In other stories, it works because pride is the only reason to keep it hidden. Here, however, there is more at stake, including separation and exile. So not forcing Lark to feel that way gives the book more credibility and reality. As far as tropes go, I have a mixed opinion. I feel that some tropes, especially in romance, are widely accepted and good to include in the right places. It's the feeling of something known, something familiar in an unknown situation. Playing off of tropes and making them your own is the sign of a good writer, in my opinion. But I feel the story needs to warrant the use of the trope. Simply inserting one because it can fit or that it seems to be where the story might go kind of rings like a, like you don't need that trope. Like I said, a trope would be better used in an unexpected situation or combination. Familiarity is good. Expectation, expected isn't. So the relationship progresses and Lark sneaks up to be with Asmar. In the way of Trollis, Asmar and Lark are secretly married and share their first night together. As a lover of wholesome romance, I enjoyed the way Holmberg wrote this. It was a powerful mix of emotions that faded to black. Nothing graphic, nothing explicit. All of it heartwarming and real. But all is not meant to be. As is the way with all good stories, good things are hard to come by. And this perfect relationship is not destined for the eternities without a little rocky road beginning. When it comes to writing couples who are married, there are many different philosophies on how to still carry a good story, rife with tension and conflict as a couple. 
Some pit the two lovers against each other, garnering some tension that way. Some pitch something that comes between them. But my favorite way, and the way recommended by author Mary Robinette Kowal, is to view them as a whole entity, separate in their mannerisms and traits, but one when it comes to the conflict of the story. Charlie does this very well as we see tensions skyrocket when an invading army begins attacking scouts outside the city. Curious to see what is going on, Lark scales the side of the city and peeks over the canyon's wall. But she is seen, and when she gets back into the city, she is taken into custody by none other than Grodd. The council has had enough of her, and they suspect her of trying to contact or join the human army outside. Her greatest sin, however, is possessing a weapon. It's only a simple knife, given by a friend because of Grodd, but humans aren't supposed to have weapons of any kind, and her disobedience is added to the pile. The worst is yet to come, however, when the council also learns of her relationship with Asmar. A human and a Trollus are not meant to be together. It defies everything the Trollus value. The council is this close to throwing them both to the canyon when Lark intervenes and promises to infiltrate the enemy army in exchange for their lives. Having the character take action, even in this helpless situation, adds power to the situation, and the council accepts. But this pushes us into the dark night of the soul, the part of the story where the character is at their lowest. This story features a twisted version of the subbeat called the return to the familiar. Often in their darkest moments, the characters will seek to return to their before life, something familiar. But in this story, it's twisted, as Lark does return to her life before, but it's her abusive father. As leader of the army, her father is marching on Kagmar, and the food it holds, and the drought, the food of the Trollis city, has become more valuable than gold. She seeks to gather information while faking submission to her father, but when she finally gets the inside scoop and takes it to the rendezvous, she is told that they need to verify the info before she can be accepted back into the city. Now more broken than ever, she has no choice but to return to her father and wait for the war to prove her correct, meaning she has to wait to see Asmar until the fighting is over, and because of the judgment from the council, Asmar will be on the front lines. As the finale breaks in, the first battle of the war begins with a bloody fight. Lark makes a break for it, trying to get to Asmar, but doesn't make it. Her father and several soldiers corner her. But then Asmar is there. Trollists are stronger than humans, but these soldiers have the numbers, and the fight soon gets brutal. Lark's father escapes, and Asmar is cut badly. Lark is safe, and Asmar living, but not for long. He's bleeding out, and quickly, he needs Trollis medics, but they are far from the city. Asmar would need an insane burst of energy to drive to drive him there, to, to allow him to make it. But then Lark knows what to do, knowing that it will hurt him, knowing that it will destroy everything they have together, and knowing it will turn him against her, Lark uses her fear on him. Every being has one of two responses, flight or fight, built directly into their being. Lark just hopes his is to flee. And he does, running all the way back to Kagmar, this is a dynamite Hightower surprise. The Hightower surprise is when Plan A, reunite with Asmar, gets a big twist in it. 
But even with Asimar unconscious back in Kagmar, the war isn't over, and the fighting could tear apart all Lark has, even if her fear already has done that for her. She can't seem to do anything about it, but she has one thing no one else does. Alone, she descends to the bottom of the canyon, something she hasn't done ever before. The monsters, vicious and huge, stalk the ground, but that's why she's there. She tracks all she can before pumping all of them full of as much fear as she can. She goes past anything she's ever done before. It's a move born of desperation. The monsters flee in droves up and out of the canyon. But Lark isn't okay. Her fear affects her too each time she uses it. And she's pumped enough fear out to drive all the monsters out of the canyon bed. It seizes her muscles and then her heart and she blacks out literally putting herself into a seizure. Unach is the one to find Lark. Since learning of her relationship with her brother, Unach has been nothing short of hostile toward Lark. But knowing no one else could send a literal horde of monsters at the invading army, Unach goes to find her friend. And Asmar is awake. As a continuation and consequence of the Hightower surprise, Asmar flips out when he sees Lark. He stumbles at her, trying to get a weapon. It is then, in that moment, Lark realizes she was right. The fear has broken their bonds, and the relationship lies in shattered pieces. She flees. It's all over. There is a reoccurring process in storytelling. There are actions, consequences, and reactions. Sometimes the reactions are small, sometimes they are times to reassess or recover, and sometimes there are times the character drops back and hides. You can see this in story structure. There's the catalyst, then the debate, and finally the break into two. There's the happening, a reaction, and then a plan, such as the all is lost, followed by the dark night of the soul, the break into three. High tower surprise, dig deep down moment, and new plan. This reoccurring system is a cause and effect formula that helps stories retain readability and also grabbing the reader's attention, pulling them in, and keeping things consistent, making sure things flow well and that they aren't just a happening after happening after happening until they sound like a textbook. But this is the moment that everything is over for Lark. Her father is dead in the war, which is a good thing, but still she has nowhere to go. All the other human towns have cast her out, except for one, she realizes. During her time in Kagmar, Lark learned of a new town not on the maps her father had. This is where she plans to go. But after packing and saying her goodbyes, one person comes to block her path. Asmar. He's different. Different from the crazed madman in the hospital bed. His eyes are sharp as they find and question her. After a tense moment where Lark tries very hard not to get her hopes up, Asmar tells her that he loves her. He wasn't as changed by fear as, she had, as he had seemed and as Lark had feared. He had been barely lucid back in the hospital. To prove his point, he shows Amriel proof in the form of his training records. When he was frightened in the past, his response to fear had always been fight, not flight. In the hospital, that emotion had tried to take over his still-dazed mind, but back on the battlefield, he had fled. 
not because that was his response. It was because he had been strong enough, or rather had loved Lark enough, to choose the other. With Kagmar still against them, they leave. Together. They seek out the other town in hopes of a brighter future. But any future together is bright enough. And as they near the town, the first raindrops in years fall on their faces. And there you have it, guys. The Hanging City. I very much enjoyed this review and analysis. I hope you learned as much as I did from it. Charlie Holmberg is a very talented writer, and I hope to learn more from her. Next on my list is the first in Charlie's Wimbrill House series, The Keeper of Enchanted Rooms. Full of a complex magic system, romance, and set in 1840s Rhode Island, the book is already very promising. Hopefully you can read it too and be ready by the time I write out the next analysis. Until then, keep reading and watch out for Charles. This has been Writer's Reason. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.